You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Welcome to the Chooseify radio podcast. This is an episode that our Facebook group had been asking about for a while. There's been so much enthusiasm about exploring this idea of veganism and not necessarily from the perspective that we think that everybody in the Phi community needs to necessarily be a vegan. But in my mind, we're always looking for what are those things that individuals have figured out? What are those little pieces that we can adopt into our own life that can help us just get a little bit better at this game? And as you know, this game isn't all finances. It's not all just math, but that's a big part of it. It is a life optimization strategy. I don't think we can ignore this. It's obvious when you look at the economics of food that vegans have figured something out. There is a path here, a life optimization path here. And for the curious mind, for the person that's open to new ideas, you will listen to this episode and you are going to get instant benefit. Not that you're going to do everything that we talk about, but if you're willing to incorporate one or two ideas from this particular episode, it is going to thrust you into a better place in your life. So I'm incredibly excited to bring on James and Stephen, who have approached veganism from radically different places and really explore their perspectives and how they latched on to this idea. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing well, Jonathan. Yeah, this uh, should be a really interesting episode. I think what you just said there, incorporate one or two ideas into your life. That's what I'm looking to take away from this. And I'm certainly approaching this episode with as open a mind as possible. I know very, very little about veganism, honestly, but just like usual, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask questions that I think probably the audience wants to hear answered. So there's going to be a ton of actionable value here. And also we're all looking to be a little healthier and a little wealthier, right? So if James and Stephen can teach us both of those things, I mean, that that's a real value-added hour podcast. So guys, with that, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. So Stephen, I think the place to start with this particular episode is just talking about what drew you to this particular concept of being a vegan or veganism, I guess, in particular. And to give some background to our audience, you know, we have been dialoguing back and forth basically since our first episode. You found our podcast early on. And in my mind, you are an ultra optimizer. Almost in every single aspect, one of the first emails I got from you was just kind of, even while you were in college, how you were organizing your meals on five-week rotations, how you were basically making Brad look like an amateur with regards to your cost per basis per meal. And that theme has like carried on through almost all the other topics that we've covered. So you're very intentional about this stuff and I'm aware of that. So I'm interested in how all of that kind of brought you to vegan. <laughs> I like to think that uh, I like systems so that I can be lazy in other areas of life. So <laughs> streamline the stuff that matters and I'm really lazy everywhere else. Uh, but aside from that, how I started, uh, I kind of fell into this, really. I, I didn't deliberately choose it. I don't think anyone sees a major lifestyle change and says, I'm going to do that. Let's make my life real hard, real quick. I didn't choose that. Uh, I actually I had a chronic disorder, really, uh, chronic tendonitis in my wrists and hands. I'm, I'm a programmer. 
And one day I just uh, couldn't really use my hands. They just started hurting. Uh, wrist started hurting, forearm started hurting. Just kind of moved up my arm like that. I knew I had to figure it out. So over a couple months, I started to get more and more desperate. And at some point, like, okay, we got to change everything. I've tried every treatment, you know, a year or two later, you start getting desperate. Like, all right, well, let's start looking at the really harder things like lifestyle changes, like exercise and diet. So from there, I really said, okay, what can we change about my diet? And I started trying to follow an anti-inflammatory diet. And I started doing more research about all sorts of things like, okay, what could potentially cause inflammation in the body? What is... What can I change that could possibly help me even a little bit? And I really landed on diet and I started learning about animal agriculture. And the more and more I learned, the more I'm like, all right, I got to try this. So I ended up being vegetarian for health for about six months. Uh, it really didn't start out as a, a cost thing or any other kind of optimization, it certainly wasn't ethics. And after about six months, uh, I really went full vegan. And I've been that way for, gosh, three and a half years now, something like that. And somewhere halfway through the uh, the vegan timeline there, I, I primary motivation switched from health to uh, ethics. But really, that was just happenstance. Didn't plan that either. Hey, Stephen, can you just define what veganism and vegetarianism, like what is the distinction? I, I am really kind of a bozo when it comes to this stuff. I don't know precisely exactly what we're talking about, about definition of terms here. Yeah, so there's a couple terms that you really want to know, I would say five or so, something like that. So first off, vegan, basically, it's a belief system, more or less. It's you don't use animals for anything, plain and simple. As a byproduct, that means you don't you don't eat them or any other products, stuff like that. So vegetarian actually in modern day means ovo-lacto-vegetarian. In past times, vegan was the same as vegetarian in terms of terms, but they split uh, just in common modern parlance. So another term you want to think about that's popped up recently is flexitarian. And flexitarian means that most of the time uh, you would eat vegan or vegetarian. Maybe when you go out with friends or just for parties or something, eat whatever you want. So it's not a moral stance. It's for some other reason. It could be for environmentalism, something like that. Uh, and the two other terms that I think are really worth mentioning are plant-based and whole foods plant-based. And we'll talk about those more if we get into the diet. But plant-based is basically just the diet portion of veganism means all you do, you don't need any animal products for whatever reason. There's no moral stance there. So it sounds like you're describing a spectrum. And would you say your gateway was one of these terms and kind of as you went deeper down the rabbit hole, which has its own parallels to FI, you kind of lined up more with maybe just a pure vegan approach to life? Yeah, it definitely is a spectrum. And there's spectrum in spectrums. It goes deep. If you ask any one vegan what veganism means, you're going to get two people who hate each other. It's a, it, it, it's, trust me, there there are wars even within factions. There's don't worry so much about the terms. Uh, just get the general idea right. Yeah, and we certainly don't want to get into any of this like religious fervor arguments. So we're going to avoid that as much as possible. But yeah, just getting that background is very helpful. So James, let's go ahead and bring you into this conversation. One of the reasons that I was so excited to include you on this call is that you are a bodybuilder from Alabama. Those two, you know, kind of adjectives in this case do not really seem to go hand in hand with being a vegan or maybe one of the other terms that Stephen just laid out. How did you discover this concept and what drew you to it? Yeah. So that's actually a kind of a funny story itself. So I've always been very uh, fitness motivated. I've done everything from jujitsu competitions, which I'm sure Brad could chime in with, but uh, I've also done 
physique competitions and more recently like powerlifting and things like that. And I've been doing uh, intermittent fasting for about six or seven years now. And I just decided, and actually I was the exact opposite of a vegan up until about a year ago now. I actually had convinced myself that I hated pretty much all vegetables, any lettuce, any tomatoes, any onions, anything that would go in salsa or on salad, other than, you know, the occasional spinach and potatoes, which I mean, some people, I guess, would count as a vegetable when they're fried and sliced up for you at Alabama. Served with ketchup? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) There's no other way. And so I was actually the exact opposite of a vegan. It wasn't until around this time last year that my wife and I went on a bike ride that was called the Tour de Taco, which is where a few hundred people riding through town and going to different taco restaurants. One of the places actually just started sliding out pre-made tacos, and I wasn't going to sit there and pick apart this tiny little taco and then be left with nothing but the shell anyway. So I just ate the whole thing, and I realized at that point that none of this was that bad. None of it was I had always convinced myself that it was a texture issue and all these different things. And my wife and I had, you know, watched all the documentaries on Netflix and we had talked about trying to become more plant based and stuff like that. But I hadn't I had never actually even tried because I had convinced myself so much that I didn't like vegetables because, you know, in Alabama, vegetables aren't really a thing like it's it's barbecue, it's steak and that's it. Actually, to me, it was more of a challenge. It was less I didn't have a health scare. I didn't have anything like that. I just wanted to see if I could do it just to challenge myself to show that you can do this and you can still maintain any level of fitness that you want to, whether it's high level, whether it's mid level, whether you want to be strong, whether you want to look good. So I, my goal was to, to prove to everyone else that I could do this. So that was actually my main motivator behind it and everything else has just kind of been, you know, a secondary benefit, whether it's the environmental, whether it's the morality issue, whether it's health, everything else has just been, you know, icing on the cake because I mean, I'm succeeding at it. So that's great. So James, that literally just strikes you one day at a taco restaurant. I mean, like you're a bodybuilder, you're into jujitsu and health and fitness. And I can only imagine what your diet was like before then with significant protein and animal products. And then you have this one taco and your whole life changes. Talk me through how that actually happens on that day. That's a hell of a taco stand. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, it was pretty good, especially considering it was the first one that we had gone to. So I just kind of set myself up for the rest of the day. But I mean, I had genuinely wanted to try to eat things, but just spattering them in here and there wasn't really cutting it. I would just taste something and it would just turn me off of it entirely. Uh, I don't know. It was really the catalyst that I needed because I wasn't going to turn down free food after I had just ridden a few miles on a bike. This was my main sustenance to get me through to the next stop. And so I wasn't going to turn that down. That essentially was the catalyst that within a couple of weeks, I had gone from not eating any vegetables to that day to eating just copious amounts of vegetables and realizing how much I actually loved them and that I hadn't had these potentially ever at least in years, at least in any time that I could remember. I'm sure that, you know, my family, probably like everybody's family, feeds their kids vegetables when they're a baby. But I I hadn't consciously eaten anything like this in, you know, decades. So that was really just the catalyst that I needed to start eating like that. And then once I had implemented plants into my diet, it was so much easier for me to just open up my whole world to just that and then cut out the meat products and the animal products and things like that. I mean, my family would tell you that, I'm kind of an extreme guy, whether it's one end or the other. 
Uh, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to go all in and just commit to it. Sometimes that's to my detriment or to other people's detriment. So I'll, I'll let everybody else be the judge on that. You know, Stephen, earlier I alluded to kind of talking about the parallels between kind of going down the rabbit hole of vegetarian to flexitarian to vegan. And then I also talked about how kind of phi is its own rabbit hole. But I'd be curious from your perspective, as someone that clearly is optimizing every aspect of his life, you know, how are those two ideas similar in your mind? There's really two ways to compare them. One is what can veganism or really a plant-based diet, because veganism outside of food doesn't really have too many economic incentives. You know, whether you buy a leather couch or a pleather couch doesn't really matter in terms of cost. Although I guess pleather might be cheaper. (laughs) I don't know that that's a moral stance. Uh, So from a cost perspective, you can save. At some point, it becomes micro-optimization. If you're really serious about trimming down your grocery bill, I think you're going to end up plant-based almost inevitably. If you're really trying to nickel and dime down to the last penny, that's the way you do it. But there's another way of looking at this, which has nothing to do with cost, which is really life quality. Uh, And I think that's just as important, if not more important than how long it actually takes you to get to financial independence. That's very interesting. So one of the things that comes to mind as I look at cost per serving and, you know, as you guys are very familiar with at this point, our kind of guiding light $2 per person per meal. And when I look at what drives up the cost of those meals, inevitably, it's what is my protein source. So beans and rice, you can get a 12-pound bag at Costco, Sam's Club, BJ's, whatever, for black beans, pinto beans, and that is costing you absolutely pennies per serving, or you can get the strip steak, and that's going to be a minimum of $6.99 per pound. So like that is just a very clear, wherever I choose to get the proteins that are going to be filling up this diet from, that is going to drive the cost per serving. So that's the economic basis, right? Yeah, that's the case. So there's a lot of different ways of looking at it, and we can get into that if you want to. There's cost per gram of protein. That's one great way of looking at it. And if I can run through some actual numbers here if you want. I love numbers, and I think our community okay. does as well. <laughs> Okay, sure. Yeah. So if you want to start comparing cost per gram of protein, we'll start near the bottom. When you're buying dry beans in bulk, you're looking at 1.1 cent per gram of protein, which is just about as cheap as you can get. Uh, Lentils are about 1.6 cents. So you know that if you're beating lentils, you're doing great. The cheapest that I have ever heard of is about 0.7 cents per gram of protein for rolled oats. So if you're having oatmeal for breakfast, if you eat breakfast, That is by far the cheapest you will ever get in terms of grams per protein, unless you're just getting straight protein powder from somewhere. So if you're looking at whole foods, this is where you're going to get it. Right above there, you've got, unsurprisingly, brown rice. Uh, So I don't think anyone is surprised that beans and rice are pretty cheap when it comes to grams per protein. And if you want to compare that to your usual uh, animal products, just to get an idea, the cheapest I have found is chicken. And that's going to be your discount chicken breast buying in bulk. That's about 1.5 cents per gram of protein, and that's by far the best deal you're going to get. So the best you're going to do is about tying lentils. Past that, eggs are about 2.5 cents, ham 2.6, milk is 2.7, ground beef is 4 cents, steak, I don't even know why I'm comparing for steak because nobody here is buying that, 4.5 cents. (laughs) Um, It goes up from there. So really, you're looking at about half if you just want to take a rule of thumb. If you're buying pulses, which are beans, lentils, peas, stuff like that, or rice, you're looking at about half the cost per gram of protein for plant-based sources. Hey, Stephen, I just want to jump in, and and James, I'd like your input on this as well. But I'll start with Stephen. 
for people out there who don't even know what they're supposed to be eating, what number of grams of protein per day are people looking for on like a normal, a normal diet, let's say a normal American diet, and then on these different versions of, of diets that you're talking about? The typical American diet, this is a pretty funny statistic here, is what they actually should be getting is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So a kilogram is 2.2 pounds, so you can work out that math, or I'll make it easier for you. You take your body weight and multiply it by 0.36, and that's how much you should be getting per day according to like the World Health Organization. So the average male in America is 195 pounds, and that person would need 71 grams of protein. So normally people are erring way on the high side of that. I've heard sources say that, especially in the bodybuilding and fitness world, that you need a gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is literally over double that. And I've even heard it as high as two grams of protein per pound of body weight. Now, uh, the average female is 166 pounds, so they would need 60 grams of protein per day in order to maintain a level of fitness. The even funnier part of this is that that number has changed dramatically because the average male used to be 180 pounds and now it's 195. So the average male has jumped up, you know, 15 pounds in the past couple of decades. And the average female used to be 140 and now they're 166. So they've jumped up, you know, another 25, 26 pounds as well in the past couple of decades. So whatever we have been doing as a typical American diet, obviously isn't working if the number continues to grow like that. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've seen as well. We're actually getting too much protein. I don't want to scare everyone off. It gets to the point where every macro and micronutrient is something you shouldn't have. But in reality, everything is a poison if you have too much of it. Uh, so that's sort of how the human body works and every living thing. Uh, so it's, if anything, we are erring on the high side of protein already for most people. James, I'm very curious. You know, we talked about the average person but the level of physique that you're trying to obtain as a bodybuilder, that, that is not what the average person is doing. You're committing yourself to potentially up to two hours of physical exercise a day. In your mind, what is the upper end of that spectrum? So we identified you know, what you need for the average American, but for you as someone that is pursuing bodybuilding, competitive bodybuilding, what do you find to be the upper end of that spectrum for yourself? So I think the top end, and this is the point where Anything more than this isn't efficient. Uh, your body's not going to utilize it anymore, anything like that. So the top end is really 1 to 1 1.2 uh, grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So even if you're at you know 1.2, that's still not close to 1 gram per pound, which is likely what the typical American is getting when they're eating, you know, copious amounts of meat. Like, so our typical diet, which I'm not sure y'all want to get into right now, but our typical diet is one large protein source and then two smaller nutritional value sides, or even likely they're not even have any nutritional value, but our main source of meal now is a huge protein source. It's really not necessary. And actually it's to the detriment of your own health thinking that you need that much protein. All right, guys. So we've talked about the importance of protein and, and how much we need, but I guess my question is, and this might be really simplistic, but how do you come across protein sources on a vegetarian or vegan diet essentially? Where do you guys go specifically for your protein? So I'd love to hop in here with this one. Some easy, high-protein vegan sources. 
Actually, hemp seeds are the, the highest protein source with 13 grams of protein per three tablespoons, which is, you know, just a tiny amount of hemp seeds. Pumpkin seeds is eight grams per fourth of a cup. You know, lentils is a, I mean, we've mentioned them before. They're also one of the cheapest sources and they're nine grams of protein per half a cup. I get a lot of edamame, chickpeas, black beans, black eyed peas, all of those are eight grams per half a cup. And then it gets less into tofu and quinoa and peanut butter, almond butter, sunflower seed butter, and all those types of things. So, you know, we're talking pretty much every source of plants have some source of protein. And it's just a matter of how much of it you're wanting to get. James, with hemp seeds, I, I don't want to expose my ignorance here, but what the heck are those? And how do you, do you, are you just like eating these as seeds and where do you buy them? I'm always looking for that like actionable tip, you know, and like when I listen to a podcast and someone says, oh, eat healthy fats, right? And we'll probably talk about that in a little bit, but well, it sounds great in theory, but if I don't know specifically what to buy, I'm going nowhere. Because right? if so you like, can't find hemp seeds at Wegmans, it's probably not going to happen, <laughs> right, Brad? <laughs> and they probably have them at Wegmans. But yeah, I mean, talk, talk me through that quickly, James. Yeah. So um, hemp seeds, you can actually get them. I don't want to say pretty much anywhere, but I can find them even here in Alabama at the grocery stores. So I can get them at, you know, Kroger. I can get them at like plant, not necessarily plant, but like organic stores like Sprouts or Whole Foods, which I'm not never going to suggest Whole Foods to anybody if they want to save any money. But yeah, they're, they're actually pretty easy to find. And you can just throw a scoop of those in with the oats that Stephen was talking about earlier, which is one of the, like, if it is the highest protein content per dollar amount. So you toss some hemp seeds in with your oatmeal and there you go. You've got one of the highest protein meals that plant-based products can provide. A description of where protein comes from would probably be useful. That's probably worth talking about. You really don't need to focus too much on getting protein unless you're someone like James and you're really optimizing your for your exact protein level. You don't really need to watch it. And the reason is uh, there's this common belief that protein is something you need to focus on. But in reality, pretty much all living things have protein because protein is a basic building block of life. So there's nothing that doesn't have protein. There's almost nothing that doesn't have complete protein. So all the amino acids. So really, as long as you're getting enough calories, you're probably getting enough protein. If you're hungry, then you might not be getting enough unless you're eating some really weird diet that's like all apples or something. I've heard of that. It's ridiculous, but you're going to have a hard time not getting enough protein. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, but you're welcome to if it assuages your fears. So Stephen, what does a healthy vegan or plant-based diet look like? Like actually talk me through even just like a, a day in the life of Stephen's eating habits. So I can just get a sense of what do your meals look like? How often are you eating? Are you having snacks? Are you, you know, just talk me through all that kind of stuff. Sure. I do intermittent fasting now. I started probably a couple months ago. It's a, you know, it's all the rave. Uh, but I don't eat breakfast anymore because I realized that breakfast was basically a trash meal for me. You know, I was always eating simple carbs, just crappy stuff. So I cut it out. Uh, but you're welcome to. Uh, there are plenty of breakfast options. Before, if I was eating breakfast, I would eat something like a chia seed pudding. It's super simple. You just put some chia seeds and coconut milk in a bowl. Uh, you can add some cardamom, get your spices in there, some antioxidants. Very simple. It's, that's like a 30-second recipe. You can have a tofu scramble. It's basically like scrambled eggs, uh, but you use tofu instead. Just as simple. takes just as long. Uh, there's a lot of options. Fruit, nuts, that sort of stuff. I recommend a simple breakfast. 
for lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner are really the same thing for me. I just cook meals batch and I eat lunch and dinner, the same meals. Those meals, I've really stopped eating like an American. This is a weird thing to say, but what James was alluding to is most Americans' plates looks like, if you look at the plate, you got one big brown thing. That's your meat. That's about half the plate. And then you've got maybe some starch for the other half, mostly potatoes, maybe some rice pilaf, something like that. And then in the little corner of the plate, hiding out under the potatoes, you've got something green, maybe, maybe canned corn, something like that. It's off to the side. And that's pretty much what my diet used to look like, but it's incredibly restrictive. And it wasn't until I started eating vegetarian and then vegan, that's not really an option anymore. The plant-based substitutes are kind of expensive. Yeah, they're nice to lean on every now and then, but they're also not as good. Like, I'm not going to say that whatever substitute you can find for steak is just as good. Uh, it's not. So I really had to relearn how to cook, and I completely revolutionized how my meals look. And a lot of it is inspired from Asian cultures who have been doing this very well, uh, vegetarian or mostly vegetarian meals for many thousands of years. So that has worked out much better than trying to come at this from a standard American approach. That strikes me that if I were going to try to tackle, at least if I were going to take my own natural inclinations and try to become a vegan, my initial thought would be, okay, how do I make the same exact meals that I'm eating now, albeit, you know, steak or chicken or whatever, what can I substitute to keep eating exactly what I'm eating, but now have it be vegetarian? And it sounds like what you're saying is that is a losing strategy. I really don't recommend that. So we can talk about substitutes. That's perfectly fine. You know, they're a good crutch if you're serious about trying this. You know, it's Thursday into my one-week vegan challenge or whatever. I don't care anymore. I just want a burger. Like, you can do that. You can go buy a Beyond Burger, but they're expensive. I think that is a road to disappointment. Uh, really, what you want to do is completely change how you're eating. So instead of eating your big meat, your starch, and your little side of vegetables, just completely rework the plate. So from an Asian perspective, what you might have is something like a stir fry. Your plate looks a lot more homogenous if you eat like I do. So I don't eat lots of little corners. I don't have a tray with lots of, each little section has its own special food in it. A lot of my food is homogenized. So I'll have a soup or a stew or a stir fry or something like that. And a lot of it has beans or lentils or all that sort of stuff mixed into it. It's very flavorful but it's usually just one thing, maybe a side of greens. And James, I'd love to bring this back and talk a little bit about a day in your life, because I think all of us, if we're, if we're going to follow Stephen's advice and not immediately look for how to substitute exactly what we're eating now with vegan substitutions, I think you do have to come up with new recipes that are imbued with that taste, with that flavor. And it may kind of take a reorientation. I know you mentioned hemp seed, like walk us through your day. What meals do you actually get excited about that aren't just specifically steak substitutes? Uh, absolutely. So much like Steven, uh, I'd mentioned before that I've been doing intermittent fasting for five, six, seven years, something like that. So again, I also skip breakfast, but for instance, this morning I went and went ahead and uh, worked out this morning before we did the podcast. And so when I got back, I made a shake and it did consist of pea protein, brown rice protein. It's like a blend. And then uh, a banana, uh, some greens, some peanut butter. And uh, I did put in some chia seeds and stuff like that. But normally I wouldn't typically have that as my first meal of the day, just because I wouldn't normally work out quite this early in the morning. But like he mentioned again, ethnic foods kind of lend themselves to vegan options because 
those foods came about and were really optimized at a time where meat wasn't, we, they didn't come up in a time of abundance that we currently have. And so the convenience of running down to the store and grabbing chicken and stuff like that wasn't really something that they had, which is something that really came about as Americans and our American diet is really consisting of. So I do eat a lot of Asian foods like bibimbap, which is Korean and bulgogi. My favorite meal probably is a vegan pad thai, which is again, stir fry. We do like broccoli shoots and shredded carrots and uh, stir fry that in with some sesame seed oil, which just really like adds a lot of flavor to it. I put that over some rice or uh, rice noodles. And then I do a handful of peanuts and some Thai sauce. And that to me is like the best meal that I could possibly have. Then there's other foods like my wife's from Cyprus. And so we eat a lot of Mediterranean foods. Like we eat veggie euros and we have dolmades, which is like stuffed grape leaves with rice and uh, different spices. And we eat falafels and hummus and we make zucchini pasta. And we really like at least once a week, probably a couple times a week, we make homemade pizzas where my wife actually makes the dough, lets it rise. We roll it out and we top it with, you know, sun-dried tomatoes and olives and mushrooms and artichokes. And then we just don't put any cheese on it. Occasionally we'll buy some of the, if my wife is really wanting it, we'll go ahead and get some of the vegan cheese options. But to me, they're not the same, and I actually prefer my pizza now almost without cheese, which is how a lot of cultures eat it. That's not what we think of when we think of Pizza Hut or Domino's or Mellow Mushroom or anything like that. Like We see a pizza that's just completely covered in cheese, and the only thing you can't see is the crust. And many other cultures, even in uh, Italy where they made pizza, you know, the margarita pizza has a few slices of mozzarella dolloped on it. So not every bite is going to have a copious amount of cheese on it. So I think that any other ethnicity, any other nationality, all these other food cuisines are actually better to try to convert to veganism or at least not even convert, just try to implement some healthier meals. They really help more than the typical American meal. James, I'm kind of curious here. So I have definitely been focusing much more on my health and fitness in the last couple of years than I, than I really have for probably the last 10 years prior to that. And I've been certainly paying attention to some of the, the trends, the macro trends in nutrition. So I've been cutting out carbohydrates and sugar. And now if we're talking about cutting out meat, to me, it's, I don't ever want to have the mindset of deprivation. So it's got to make that case of, okay, what am I going to eat when I'm hungry for a snack? Do you pull out certain vegetables? Like Stephen was saying, do you have one all-in-one meal that you might pull out for a snack? Frankly, are you just not hungry because these meals are so nutritious? Talk me through what you do like on a daily basis. You're a guy who's a bodybuilder and presumably you have some fairly significant nutritional needs. When you're hungry for a quick snack, do you go in the fridge and grab a couple carrots? What do you do on like a day-to-day basis? Because that sounds incredibly unfulfilling as a guy that has <laughs> cravings all the time. So another huge benefit of eating as a vegan is that my meals have actually grown significantly because I do need so many more calories than probably what the typical person needs. I do eat a lot more and ironically eating as a vegan has actually helped me feel satisfied more because my plate has just grown tremendously. Instead of having, you know, six ounces of chicken, I'm getting 
12 ounces of rice and beans and something else. And so it's, it's actually, I'm eating a lot more volume, but the nutrients are actually more so there. It's more nutrient dense foods. But to answer your question about if I'm having a snack, if I'm hungry for something, I actually mix my own trail mix. To me, it's phenomenal because we do dried fruit, we do nuts, we do seeds like pumpkin seeds and cashews and peanuts and dried pineapple or dried bananas and different things like that. And so, you know, I can knock out 500 calories on some trail mix and feel very satiated, at least until my next meal, which, you know, I do try because I'm doing intermittent fasting, I try to squeeze most of my calories in an eight hour window. And so to squeeze in the amount of calories, I'm getting to eat a lot, which to me is the biggest benefit because as a closet fatty, it's great for me to to get to eat as much as I could possibly want <laughs> and to not have to worry about it being detrimental to my health. I hear you, man. Even as you were saying that, I was just kind of working through this framework of trying to put all this stuff together. And it's interesting. I'd like to put my hand up as being someone else that practices intermittent fasting. I absolutely love that. I, maybe it should be its own show, but I really do feel like that could be a full topic. It is such a life hack. Steven, I'd love to get your perspective on, like, let's say this person were to watch two documentaries back to back. And on Monday night, they watch What the Cow, which I think is a really big vegan documentary. And then the second day they were to watch The Miracle Pill, which is this hardcore ketogenic diet, almost all animal and fatty products and love the fats. Where's the middle ground? What is the common theme? I always watch something and say, you know what? I'm not going to agree with everything or think that they are hundred percent on the nail, but there is probably something to this. There is this bit that I could extract. What, what is the common thread that someone can grab from the people that believe are all in on ketogenics, all fats, and the people that are completely anti-carbs and the people that are all, you know, thinking that, that vegetarian, all vegetarian, where, where is that common thread in your mind? Yeah, so I'll try and denoise the uh, plant-based diet for you, specifically whole foods plant-based. So when anyone's making health claims, usually it's whole foods plant-based. You can eat really crappy on a plant-based diet. Like most processed food is actually vegan. Oreos are vegan. So theoretically, just eating Oreos is plant-based, uh, but obviously not good for you. So if you want to denoise this a little bit, like why is this why is this good for you? How does this compare to everything else when somebody else is telling me that this is bad for me? I think that there's a couple simple things that makes this work. It's what you're getting and what you're not getting. So what you're not getting when you choose to eat fewer animal products is you're not getting some fats, which may not be good for you. It's possible. I won't make any uh, health claims there, but it has a lot more to do with what you are getting. So when you replace, let's say a cut of meat, let's say chicken breast with a pile of some seasoned chickpeas, what you're getting is a buttload of fiber. And fiber is incredibly important. It is so, so, so important for your microbiome because you don't actually eat a lot of that fiber. You can't digest it, but your microbiome can. So it's food for your gut. But it's also really good at uh, regulating your um, blood sugar, all sorts of other things like that. So fiber is incredibly important and most people are deficient in it. So just because you're replacing something that doesn't have fiber with something that always has a lot of fiber, most plant foods, that's a huge benefit. So that's probably where a lot of the benefit comes from. Additionally, plants are much more likely to have more micronutrients than animal products. And the other common thread is a lot of these diets, so let's say we compare it to paleo, for example. The reason that paleo works and the reason that plant-based probably works is because the things that they're cutting out. So paleo, you're cutting out dairy a lot of the time. 
which is typically high in simple carbs. You're cutting out processed foods. Any diet that cuts out processed foods, that's probably 80% of what's good for you right there. Uh, because hyperpalatable foods are almost never good for you. So just cutting that part out right there is a huge win. And the rest of the optimization really comes from, okay, well, maybe it's not so surprising that eating a lot of vegetables is good for you. And that's that's kind of the punchline. So if you are whole foods plant-based, you are far more likely to eat a lot of vegetables. And vegetables are really good for you. So Stephen, on the topic of vegetables, talk me through when you go to the grocery store, what are you actually buying? What are your five or so favorite vegetables? How much diversity of vegetables are you getting on a daily, weekly basis? Give me a real sense of what this looks like in practice. Sure. So I try to plan out most of my meals ahead of time, so it probably doesn't come as a surprise. I'm usually making soups, stews, stir fries, stuff like that. So I kind of have a tier list. A lot of the time I'll come in with a general idea. I know I'm going to make a soup. I'm going to know I'm going to make a stew or stir fry, but I don't actually fill in the ingredients. I have an internal tier list in my head. And this is something that you guys can all remember. It's hopefully easy for you to remember. You got to get your proteins. So I'm buying stuff like beans, rice, tofu, tempeh, stuff like that, that I'm going to mix into my food. That's just the protein source. So I get that out of the way. After that, the rest of it, a lot of it is produce, both frozen and fresh. And what I'm thinking is I need to get my berries, some kind of berries. If berries aren't in season, I'll buy them frozen because they're significantly cheaper. Berries are incredibly good for you, specifically blueberries and other dark berries. So think berries, cruciferous vegetables. So that's your cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, everything in that brassica family. You got to get those. Those are fantastic for you. They have a lot of very healthy compounds and leafy greens, specifically dark, dark leafy greens. Lettuce is okay doesn't have a lot of nutrients, got some fiber, anything other than lettuce, uh, dark leafy greens. If you just get those things, it really doesn't even matter what else you eat. It's so fantastic. Unless you're eating something horrible to offset me, there's that edge case. If you're getting those things in your diet, you are going to be miles ahead of everyone else. Can we talk about adding flavor and maybe James direct this at you, if, especially in the case of, let's say you are consuming a lot of dry beans. Now I can understand adding dry beans to a chili or something along those lines and kind of having that take in some of the flavor of the chili. But what about just consuming it with brown rice? I mean, how do, is there anything that you have found, any kind of go-tos that either of you have used to really ratchet up the flavor of beans to make them something that you're actually leaning into each time? I mean, is it refried beans? You know, something along those lines. What do you guys do? What are your strategies? So I actually used a lot of like crushed red pepper and cayenne pepper and like Creole seasoning. If I'm essentially going to eat rice and beans and something else that doesn't really add a lot of flavor, then, I mean, you definitely have to dress it up with sea salt, hot sauce, salsa, soy sauce. And then like if I'm really feeling adventurous, then I dip into my Asian food toppings like, you know, the Thai sauce or I've got different teriyaki sauces and stuff like that. My go to is some Creole seasoning with cayenne pepper, crushed red pepper and different types of salt. And that really makes it a lot more palatable for me. And Steven, did you want to weigh in on that? Sure. Yeah. On my side, I don't want to paint this picture of me sitting down with a sad bowl of beans and rice and like, all right, this is my life. That's exactly what I was envisioning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving money. This feels great. Uh, I don't remember the last time I ate beans and rice by themselves. The last time I did, I wasn't even vegetarian. I was just trying to save money. So it's been a long time. I don't do that. Like it's always mixed into something. Uh, bibimbap is something that I have made just like James said, it's a Korean dish. 
You don't eat these things in isolation. They are always paired with an enormous amount of flavor. So if you take how flavorful my food is now compared to what it used to be, it's a joke. My food is so much better. I look forward to pretty much every meal. I just get excited about it. I'm like, man, that's good. Where has this flavor been all of my life? And it's because the rest of the world, in the absence of super palatable foods, uh, like animal products that are very easy to get, they made up the difference with spices. And it's all in the spices. That is the magic. Once you learn how to make your own spice mixes or just buy them if you have to, I recommend making your own. Your food gets so much better. If you do nothing else, even if you don't want to eat plant-based or anything like that, take a look at the foods of the rest of the world because the flavor profiles that they have are just so much more varied and interesting and incredibly good for you compared to what a lot of Western diets are. There's just so much to see. Yeah, this is definitely the big takeaway for me so far in the episode is flavor. It sounds like you guys are describing these wonderful meals that you're legitimately looking forward to. Whereas I think, unfortunately, vegetarianism and, and veganism, they have bad PR. Like in my mind's eye, I'm picturing someone, like you said, kind of sadly going to the fridge and pulling out a bag of broccoli and just munching on it. How awful is that? But I mean, clearly that's not what you guys are describing at all. Like these are varied meals and I'm certainly much more interested now after hearing this. And I kind of want to pivot real quick to the cost of this. So obviously we talked about the cost of protein, but this is certainly way beyond just protein, obviously. So Stephen, it sounds like you have the numbers right in front of you. Talk me through your daily cost per food or cost per meals or whatever term you want to use. So what it costs is really up to you. I'm not somebody who optimizes for cost, despite understanding what costs the most and what costs the least. So cost is a metric for me, but it is farther down the list. For me, I love food. I love cooking. I love making things. And I'm optimizing mostly for health. Health, then flavor, and then cost. So cost is third. So if I need to tie break, then it comes down to cost. And I, I have a pretty good I, mental map of what things cost, but I don't sacrifice health because in my mind, ultimately, yeah, I spend a little more on groceries because I know what healthy fats are. I'm willing to spend a little more to get produce out of season that I know is good for me. So I'm optimizing for long-term cost, which is, you know, when I'm 60, I intend to have no incredibly high medical bills. So if you take a really long view of this, I'm pretty sure that my approach will be cheaper than just plain optimizing for cost, like some sort of berserker. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> okay. Can you, uh, I love the berserker line specifically. Can you break down for us, like, just because I know you are aware of what you spend because you do track this stuff. Give us yeah. a sense of when you're being incredibly intentional, what you could expect to be able to sustain and then personally for yourself, what you find yourself looking back, actually spending on food. Yeah. So we spend more on food than we could. So if we are incredibly intentional, so if we're taking a month where, all right, we're just trying to save as much money as possible. We're a family of four and we've got a three and a half year old and a three month old. So excluding formula costs. You're looking at, if we're super intentional, probably $400 to $500 per month. And that's planning every single recipe, everything ahead of time, hyper-optimizing. You could get it lower because these protein sources are cheaper and the calorie sources are generally cheaper as well. But beyond that point, I find that you really start to hate what you're eating. It's not as flavorful. It's not as interesting. It's not as varied. And above that, I think you start seeing diminishing returns right around uh, seven or $800 
Beyond that point, what you're buying is snack foods, uh, desserts, because the only way to get higher than that, in my mind, is to start buying really extravagant one-off things. So that's really our range is 500 to 700, something like that per month for our, our little family of four. And 700 is a very nice month. We're really excited about every meal. Getting down to 500, it's like, okay, we're starting to see some repetition. Not Maybe not quite as exciting. So that's what it looks like for us. And James, what about on your end? Now I feel like I've kind of been put down because uh, I'm, I feel like more of the uh, optimizer on this one because my wife and I, between the two of us, we almost exclusively shop at Aldi. We yes, Aldi is getting thing. some representation in the vegan episode. <laughs> Aldi is the epitome of efficiency as far as grocery stores are concerned in my mind, which to me, efficiency is the name of the game. But we do occasionally get things at Kroger here and there, but not often. So typically, my wife and I spend around $40 a week, so $160 a month for the two of us. And she's also a competitive power lifter as well. Now she's she's much smaller than I am, so her caloric needs are less, but still two healthy people. And we actually, I think we include our dog food in on that cost because we do actually cook most of our dog's food. We supplement it with like a regular dog food, but we also kind of supplement that with, with different foods as well. And she's 17 years old and still doing great. So between the two of us and our dog, we're spending $40 a week on food. Wow. $160 a month, all the way up to the higher end of $700 a month. That is an incredible spectrum for this kind of general approach to veganism. And yeah, well, looking at the financial aspect of it is interesting. I actually want to pivot back to health. So Stephen, when you first started your story of how you got into this, you were describing wrist pain and and other ailments. And, and I'm curious, how that has changed since you went to a plant-based or vegan diet and where you are now on the health spectrum? Yeah, so I am better. I like to say I'm 99% cured. Symptoms pop up every now and then, but for the most part, I'm a normal person again, which is a long way from not being able to turn a doorknob or pet a dog. Uh, so that's a, that's a huge improvement. Now, I can't chalk that up to just the diet because I'm not one of those people that thinks it's a miracle pill change your diet and suddenly you no longer need to take your medication. That may happen, but I'm not going to sell that on the front end. I will say that as a percentage of things that you can do to control your health span, which is how long you live and how healthy you are while you're alive, diet is at least, it's gotta be number one. I, I haven't seen very many people that put it below number one. So it is by far the greatest control you have over your, your entire life. And I will say that I feel significantly better on average, just as a side effect from what I eat. I don't really get tired dips during the day. That used to happen to me a lot. You know, I would crash and I still drink coffee. So there's, there's no change there. I just feel better. I feel like I have energy all the time. I rarely feel overly stuffed or starving. I just feel, I don't know, it's weird to say, but I, I feel kind of normal. Uh, I just feel kind of level all the time. I don't have spikes of energy or depression or sadness or emotion. Just a pretty steady life, I guess, is what I got out of it so far. And James, I'm curious from your take on this. In your mind, now that you've been vegan for a year and probably getting progressively better at it as you go, what is the biggest selling point for you now? So I did mention before that I did this kind of as a challenge, like for athletic performance and to see if I could maintain a level of fitness. And so just to put some numbers on it, 
right before I became vegan, like within a couple of months before I became vegan, I competed at a powerlifting competition. And so the big three lifts that you use are squat, bench, and deadlift. And so my squat was 405 pounds. My bench was 245 and my deadlift was 445, which are not shabby numbers, like, but they're not world-class either. And after becoming vegan uh, a few months ago, I actually did another powerlifting competition. So I actually dropped a weight class. So I lost 18 pounds and I actually squatted the exact same. It was actually 407. So, you know, a nominal difference there. So two pounds more, but my bench was 275. So I added 30 pounds to my bench and my deadlift was also 475. So I added 30 pounds to it. And so I lost weight yet. I gained strength and I could just I can tell that I recover faster. I'm not carrying unnecessary amounts of weight. Um, and so to me, I, I can have both. I can look better, I can feel better, and I can be stronger. To me, that's one of the biggest selling points of vegan. That's incredible. So yeah, all those bodybuilders out there saying you need one or more grams of protein per pound of body weight, you've proven that false or that you need to have all these animal products. That is just astounding to me because, yeah, I mean, I think so many of us have these preconceived notions that vegetarian or vegan, it's just, it's not conducive to an active fit lifestyle. And that's completely unfair, but I think that's kind of a common thought. I'm also curious, have you noticed any other tangible health benefits? So any type of joint pains that went away or anything else that you could actually point to that oh, wow, I didn't even realize my default state was X and now it's better because I'm eating this way. Well, I can say that uh, my bike rides, because I do ride my bike a lot to work, they've been faster. I mean, so it's genuinely taking me less time to get there, but I also hurt less throughout the day after that. Like sometimes, you know, I'll sit down and I'll get up and my legs will be a little sore. So that's been less and my skin has gotten clearer. Not that that was a real issue before, but I feel like from the inside out, I have alleviated almost any symptom that I could have had. So Steven, I think probably this question is probably better served to you. And I realize that this will reflect maybe your opinion specifically, as opposed to the vegan community at large opinion on essentially why should someone be a vegan? What is the environmental impact of a single person, a single person's choice to be vegan? What is your most compelling case for, for that, for veganism at large? Sure. Yeah. And I'm not going to preach to anyone here. I'm sure there's plenty of people who are gritting their teeth right now. Like my way is right. I take a very positive spin on this. I do try to encourage people to try it just because it's been such a positive force on my life. I do care about the health. And like I said, I, I started out for health reasons. I didn't just go to a petting, petting zoo one day and decide, oh man, I'm not gonna eat these guys anymore. Uh, that's not how it happened. I kind of ended up here and there's a couple different aspects for why you do it. There's human rights perspectives that most people don't know about. You can go look it up. There's a great environmentalism stance. The, the most cited number is I think 18% of carbon emissions come from animal agriculture or supporting industries. So it's a lot. If you care about that, obviously, this is something you might try to do. Uh, and the last is animal welfare. Not some, Again, not something I thought about. I just didn't think about it. I didn't care. Uh, I care about it now. I learned a lot. And if that's something that interests you, go check it out. And I'd say your metric, your threshold for knowing whether you would like this or not, because again, I was somebody who wasn't interested, and clearly I'm interested now. The threshold for whether you should think about whether you care about the environmentalism or the ethics stance is 
just imagine a friend came up to you and said, hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about trying this vegan thing for a month or so. If your reaction is, oh, wow, good for you, then yes, you are somebody who should try it. Uh, if your reaction is to roll your eyes and walk away, you might not be the, the right person to try it, but who knows? So that's really my take on it. I think that I have gained so much from it from just a quality of life perspective. It's really hard to describe, but I think if you ask around, uh, you're going to start hearing the same answers from a lot of other people who the most common response I get is, why didn't I do this sooner? That's the same exact feedback that we get on financial independence, Brad. <laughs> that is very, very true. No, that's cool. I like the parallels there for sure. So guys, we're all about taking action. If someone was interested in pursuing veganism or vegetarianism, how would they get started? What's the best way to take action this week or this month? There's a lot of different ways to take this on, but if I were to approach it, I would suggest you don't do something like meatless Mondays where you replace just one meal. Uh, you're welcome to try that, but I just don't think you're going to get a lot of the benefits that we talked about. So when I talked about totally revolutionizing your plate, you're going to have to make some major changes to the way you cook and the way you eat and the way you shop. And if you just sub out one meal, you're kind of, you know, you're not really trying very hard. You can find a substitute for chicken breast. You can find a substitute for fish sticks. It's not hard. Like, oh, wow, we did it. We substituted the cheese for Daya cheese. Uh, we substituted the ground beef for lentils. All right, we did it. I recommend that you would actually you take on a little bit longer challenge. It doesn't have to be super long. Maybe take three days, maybe take a week. But what you want is enough to actually immerse yourself. What you want is you want to get to the point where it's actually uncomfortable. If at any point you say, ah, this was super easy, then you probably didn't learn anything. You probably didn't gain anything. And you're definitely not going to take anything away from it. So I would recommend that you take a little bit longer. Feel free to substitute a meal, see if you like it. But I recommend taking on at least a week challenge. All right, this week only, we're doing all plant-based. We got to figure it out because what that does is it forces you out of your comfort zone and you have to start unlearning your old habits. The moment you sit down and you realize you can't have tilapia and canned corn for dinner, that's when you have to start thinking and you have to start improving. So that's what I'd recommend. I can post a bunch of resources for recipes and stuff like that to try in the show notes. I don't think we need to list it in the audio format. Well, all right, guys, for those of you getting started, go ahead and start stocking up on those Oreos, right, Stephen? <laughs> Maybe not too many, but every now and then. <laughs> Stephen's mind just blew up. <laughs> That's what you took away? That's what you heard? <laughs> all right, guys, well, normally that would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Absolutely. I'm ready. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, James, question number one, your favorite blog. So kind of have to go with the original Mr. Money Mustache. That's the one that turned me on to financial and independence and everything. But I also have recently really started enjoying Root of Good. Um, Justin McCurry, he, he posts a lot of funny stuff. And so I really enjoy both of those. And it's not just funny too, man. He can take these incredibly complicated topics and just he makes them so relatable and understandable. I, I love his content. Absolutely. Steven, what about you? Your favorite blog? It's got to be Raptitude. I'm actually really happy you got David on because he is such an insightful person. He has changed my life significantly. I just have so much more emotional control, so much more thoughtful, insightful. I understand 
a lot of how to optimize my life thanks to him. He's just a really interesting writer who can just sort of get to the a nugget of truth about humanity in just a couple sentences. It's really impressive. So, Stephen, that leads into question number two, your favorite article of all time. I'd be curious if you have any, a couple from Raptitude, and then actually answer your question as, as you intended. Yeah, uh, I would say Raptitude, pretty much just look at the right-hand column there. There's a best of, and they're all good. The interview with the man is particularly good, but I, I can't pick one. I'd say they're all great. And that is the first blog that J.D. Roth actually told me this specifically, that with Raptitude, more so than any other blog he's ever read, it rewards careful reading from the very first blog entry, which I think was in 2009. Just a, a really well-rounded blog. Yeah, he doesn't write fluff. All right, James, how about you? Your favorite article of all time? So my favorite article of all time is probably The True Cost of Commuting. That really, to me, was the first actionable tip that I took to start riding my bike to work, especially, you know, being a fitness aficionado. So I started biking to work and that really just started showing me that I can actually do some of these things and actually start making an impact on myself and my life and even the world around me. Yeah, that's very cool. I still haven't figured out the uh, bike riding thing around town, but I have to say I just bought a bike. I mentioned on the podcast recently how we just bought a new house and we have this really wonderful community now where our family takes nightly bike rides. It's just fantastic. I haven't been on a bike in longer than I care to admit, but man, it's just really cool to be out there riding around. And James, before we bypass that, I wanted to just very quickly come back and, and highlight your FI story. I know you guys are aggressively on the path to financial independence, and I'd love to kind of get a sense of where are you guys at in terms of the milestones of FI, path to FI? What does your trajectory look like over the next couple of years? So actually, it's ironic because my wife and I just sat down and calculated it yesterday. So we own nine rental units, and that was going to be a perfect segue into my favorite life hack because house hacking is definitely it. So yeah, so I don't want to steal your thunder on the next question about the favorite life hack, but house hacking is definitely real estate is our main source of income in FI. It's our goal. And so, you know, the 401k, the IRAs, we're definitely shoveling money towards that. But anything left over, we're actually using for real estate. We think about this time next year, depending on how some things go, whether or not we pick up another property, we should be able to pull the trigger on FI. I'll be 28 and my wife will be 27. So, so that's really the goal is next year. But if we end up holding that a little longer, just to turn it into a fat FI for another, you know, six months to a year, then I'm not going to be too upset about it either. Yeah, we'll try not to hold it against you. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen, what about you? Your favorite life hack? Favorite life hack? That's going to have to be, I was going to say reading, but that's eh, kind of lame. So what we're going to say really is goal setting. I have a goal setting and scheduling and accountability system that spans about seven spreadsheets. I look at them every day. Now it grew from there. It didn't start at seven. It started at one, but it's just so detailed. So everything I want to do in life is captured somewhere in some sort of system. And in that way, I make sure that I'm always getting the important stuff done. And it has just made me such a streamlined person. It's not more work, it's less work. I spend less time thinking and worrying and being anxious about what I'm going to do today, tomorrow, next year, 10 years. I've got plans for everything. And the plans change all the time, but I have plans. That's the important part. And it has really revolutionized everything, really. Stephen, I want to do an entire podcast just on that answer. So that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, my mind is reeling right now. I think that's something we are going to have to come back to at a later date. Uh, that sounds absolutely incredible. So wow, well done. I'd be happy to nerd out on it. Nice. 
All right, guys. Uh, I guess, Stephen, we'll stay with you. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. I, fortunately, I haven't made any major ones. When I thought about this earlier, my biggest mistakes weren't mistakes because I, I got something out of it. So my biggest expensive decisions were all good in retrospect. If I had to choose anything, I'd say moving too frequently. We moved a lot between moving to Seattle from Georgia, moving once or twice in Seattle, and then moving back to Georgia in about five years. And that's expensive. It's really expensive, breaking lease, stuff like that. But every time we moved, we were happier. So it's kind of uh, short-sighted to look back and say, oh, we shouldn't have done that because we were happier every time we moved and we're happiest now. So it worked out, but it was expensive. And James, what about you, man? Your biggest financial mistake? It's kind of ironic that real estate is our number one goal because my biggest financial mistake was our first real estate purchase, uh, my wife and I. We had just gotten married and financial independence wasn't even close to anywhere on our radar. And so we bought this big fancy condo that would have bought us a three bedroom house in the suburbs. But instead, we bought a big fancy condo that was one bedroom, one bath, and it had or one and a half bath, which is not much better. But it had uh, an expensive HOA and all of these things. And then when we found financial independence, we decided to sell it. And it sat empty for almost a year before it finally sold because we had already bought another property deciding to house hack it. So my biggest financial mistake was trying to get a big fancy loft to impress other people essentially is what it was. Lesson learned. Uh, I guess we could go ahead and follow up with you and, and see if maybe there's something you want to add to that. Question number five, advice you would give your younger self. Yeah. So my advice I would give my younger self is uh, don't really care about what other people think, which I know everybody says this, but I feel like if I was giving it to myself in the past, then maybe I would retain it a little more because I went from owning five or six cars and trying to buy fancy things and showing that I had money more than I actually had to going to actually doing the exact opposite. Now I drive an older car. Now I live in a smaller place and now I have much more money than I had when I was doing all of these things, trying to show that I had it. Can you tell us about one of those cars that you had? <laughs> I can. Uh, actually, at the Camp 5 Mid-Atlantic, I uh, am proud to say that I won the highest mileage car there. My wife actually had it when we got married and I've been driving it since. We've got a 97 Toyota Camry with 293,000 miles on it. I call it the money-making machine because it doesn't cost us anything. It gets good fuel mileage and there's been zero maintenance issues and I'm just going to drive it until literally the wheels fall off. And to put in that comparison, didn't you at one point have like a kit car? So you had all these other cars plus a kit car? I did. Yeah. That was my second most biggest financial mistake would be buying a kit car that was essentially like, I don't know if anybody knows what an aerial atom is, but it was essentially that. The other side of it is it was a big benefit because I literally owned the fastest car that I'm ever going to own in my life. It was scary fast. It was pretty dangerous as a vehicle, to be honest. It didn't have a top. It didn't have doors. It was all just piping and it looked like scaffolding going down the road, but it was incredibly fast, but it was a pretty huge financial mistake as well. Luckily, I actually sold it and used that to fund our first rental property. That's a pretty cool story in the end. And yeah, definitely when you hit 300,000 miles on the odometer, take a picture and post it in the Facebook group. I would love to see how many comments and likes you got. I think that could be, be an all-time record for sure. I definitely will do that. Nice. All right, Stephen, advice you would give your younger self? Oh, man, I feel like such a chump now for getting rid of my 2001 Toyota Camry. Huh. 
<laughs> but yeah, so if I had to give myself advice, it would be really find a growth mindset earlier on and really spend more time on introspection and self-improvement. The biggest gains that I found in my life, both in terms of quality of life and actual like material wealth, has all come from an internal change, not from like getting a skill or getting a new job. All of that stuff was a consequence of me figuring out what I wanted and how to optimize how good I am at life, basically. And if I had done that even a few years sooner, I have no idea where I'd be now. So Stephen, you talked about raptitude, and I also know you're an avid impact theory listener. Are there any other sources of information that you've used to further this journey? Uh, yeah, I'd say just follow the trail. If you start with impact theory, that's great because it's an interview show. Look at the guests, see which ones resonate with you, or read the impact theory reading list. There's like 30 books that I think Tom uh, ranks as the most important and influential. Listen to the authors, read the books. And from there, when something resonates with you, just follow it. Because every time what you end up finding is another YouTube channel, another set of books, and one of those may actually be key for you. And that's something I've found is that a lot of those ancillary books, when you're following that trail, you know, just casually reading or watching videos, a lot of those have had life-changing effects on me too. All right. Now we do have a bonus question for you guys, and we'll start with you, James. Um, we have tried to become increasingly intentional about talking about this idea of value and what we would like to know. And I think what our listeners would like to know, while we spent all this time talking about the things you don't buy or the cars you drive for extended periods of time, we want to talk about something that you purchased over the past 12 months that has brought a lot of value to your life. So that's the question. What purchase did you make over the last 12 months that has brought the most value to your life? I can't decide if I'm proud or saddened to say that um, I actually had to go through like my Amazon order history in preparation for this because spoiler alert, I kind of knew this question was coming, but I did decide that it was a, a mini bike pump that I bought because I, I do bikes so often that I bought a mini bike pump with a puncture kit and it has actually saved me a couple of times from being stranded, you know, 10 or 12 miles away from home. And so it has just been a lifesaver because otherwise I would just be walking or trying to take an Uber with a bike hanging out the back of it. So oh wow, that's my best purchase for this year. So was that an actual story from last year as you broke down halfway and had the Uber hauling you and your bike home? Did that actually happen? That actually happened to my wife uh, before I bought the puncture kit. She was biking home from work one day she actually did get a flat tire and she didn't bring a spare tire with her or anything. And so she did have to Uber home and her, her bike was hanging out the trunk of the Uber. <laughs> oh man. You know, that Uber driver pulled up and said, oh, hell no. <laughs> I felt bad for her because, uh, I'm the one that convinced her to ride. And so this was probably her third or fourth time riding, but at that point it can't get much worse. So she's, she stuck with it. Nice. All right, Steven, what about you? What purchase has brought the most value to your life over the past 12 months? Over the past 12 months, I'm going to say AeroPress. It's just good coffee. You can't beat it. I was using uh, Keurig before that. Uh, sorry, mom. That's why I stopped using the uh, Keurig machine. It's because I got an AeroPress. But if we zoom out, I'd be doing the world a disservice if I didn't say in the past five years, the best purchase I've ever made is the fifth edition Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook. If somebody tried to convince me that there was more fun per dollar than that book, I wouldn't believe them. A group of friends and that book, you're talking thousands, thousands of hours of fun. Oh man, the AeroPress is such a solid choice. And actually, Brad, I thought you might want to hop in on that just because I think that I first heard about that from a Tim Ferriss episode, but that is a, that is a solid, solid 
But I will say, it. I guess it's kind of like the K-Cup. It's a single service serving of coffee. But coffee is, in and of itself, it's an entire rabbit hole that can take you months and months to come to the ends of just as a personal user. And guys, I'm, I'm going to name this episode The Vegan Path to Fi. And in my mind, it's not that someone needs to be Fi and be vegan. Both of those are required for the person to be authentic. But it is that people like yourselves have figured something out and it just makes sense. It's just the obvious choice. I'm curious for both of you, if you were going to communicate, you know, one last thing to that person that's in the FI community and is willing to challenge themselves and stretch themselves a little bit and is now hearing about veganism in this context for the first time, what would you want to communicate to them? And Stephen, I'll start with you. So now that I'm on the other side of this, and I never imagined myself here, it feels like one of life's great secrets. It really does. I smile to myself and I think about how similar it feels to Fi in terms of like how I feel compared to the rest of the world. Like, what are you doing? Why don't you do this? Not even from like a negative perspective, like I'm upset that you're not doing this, but just I'm upset that you're not experiencing how good I feel and how happy I am about what I'm doing. I want you to feel that. Just try it. Just try it. Because if anything, you will find something that will improve your life. I can pretty much guarantee you if you give it an honest try. And James? So yeah, to, to tie it into Phi, uh, I think the statement is true for, for practically everything uh, that's beneficial, but don't do nothing because you can't do everything. So even if you try it for the week, like Stephen's suggesting, and it doesn't really work out for you, your family isn't into it, you know, um, you have too many commitments, blah, 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 all the excuses that you could think of, you don't have to not do nothing. You can still eat mostly vegan and do the flexitarian thing. You can do whatever works for you, but don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Stephen, what is the best way someone's listening to this? They're interested more in finding out more about your recipes, maybe finding out more about your goal setting strategies, maybe finding out more about Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. What's the best way for someone to reach you? So I'm on the Facebook group, uh, both the Choose FI Facebook group, and there's a Facebook group called Vegan Fire. So we're right next door. Uh, if you have questions, like that's the best place to ask. But feel free to shoot me uh, an email. I have a whole bunch of recipes set up. I'm happy to provide advice on goal setting. Or if you are just thinking like, how the heck do I actually do this? Like what I said in the episode wasn't enough. Just shoot me a personal message. I'll get back to you. And James, what about you? So you can actually find my wife and I, we blog at rethinktheratrace.com. Uh, we're also on the Facebook group and uh, you can feel free to contact us via either way. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Thank you. So Brad, I was obviously excited about this episode and I pitched James and Steven on coming on the show and doing it. But I'll be honest, even from when I was telling you we were going to do this episode, I know you were kind of confused. Well, what are we going to talk about? What is the point of this show? And I'm curious, now that you have experienced it, what are your thoughts on this now? Yeah, I have to say I was not close-minded. That's certainly not not the way I roll, but I just didn't know where we were going to go with this. If we we're going to talk about their background stories, if we we're going to talk about the actual nuts and bolts of of how they eat on a daily basis, and I was really impressed. I think they both made a compelling case for why this makes sense, both from a cost perspective, but more importantly, from a health perspective. And also, they're eating wonderfully. That's the way these guys are describing this. This is not like I said in the interview, they're not going to the refrigerator and pulling out a bag of broccoli or cauliflower and munching on it. They're describing these delicious, flavorful ethnic meals that are healthy and cost a fraction of what 
the normal American diet does. So there's a real compelling case to try this. And I'm going to take Stephen up on that and and give this a whirl for, I think he said either three or seven days would be would be a reasonable way to start. And I'm very interested to see what kind of health benefits I'll glean from it. Be curious to get Laura's feedback on this episode as well. Yeah, well, we certainly need some buy-in from Laura, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to our audience, if you got value from today's episode and you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us in what we're doing here at ChooseFI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC, P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.